afternoon. I'm Ray Gerler. I'm interim director of uh, OSU Libraries, and it is my pleasure this afternoon to uh, uh, to welcome you to the uh, library's weekly read aloud, uh, where we feature uh, faculty and staff uh, reading from books that uh, are their favorite that uh, have inspired them. Uh, it's my privilege to uh, introduce uh, President Gee who uh, uh, will read from a book, I believe, of uh, inspiration called The, uh, uh, the Last uh, Lecture. Uh, and uh, one of, uh, he will, I believe, entertain some good questions. And I hope that one of the questions that you said I have for him is uh, how does a, uh, a busy person, such as the president of the university, uh, uh, how do you find time to, uh, uh, to read for pleasure? So I'll say that Ladies and gentlemen, I'll try to uh, I'll try to be um, wow. This is kind of daunting, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, you know, there's so there's so many books that I could have read from that I've been reading lately, and uh, I tend to be a reader who reads a number of things at the same time. I don't know if some of you are like that, but I just can't read one thing. I read sort of multiple things, and, and uh, some things for pleasure, some things for real pleasure. What? Uh oh. Oh, well, they're just, they're just reminding people that they're. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's all right. That's all right. I, I'm reminding myself that I'm here. Um, right, let's let's wait until he gets finished, okay? And and you're going to have to excuse me. I I gave a speech yesterday to the faculty, and uh, and I've been suffering from this. I don't know what everyone suffers from in Columbus, Ohio, but I've been suffering from it, and so. Uh, so uh, if my voice gets a little cracky, I apologize. But anyway, I, I'm I, I'm sort of uh, a reader that reads in a, in a number of different uh, areas. Um, um, I'm re reading Nathaniel Philbert's book on the Mayflower right now. I'm reading a couple of books on leadership. I need all the help I can get. Uh, and and it happens to be that the last lecture is one that uh, it sits right on my uh, sits right on my. Uh, Book stand right next to my bed because there there are a couple of books there. I have a couple of sonnets and uh, books on sonnets and a couple of other things that I just like to have because every once in a while I like to call them because I think they're sort of fun to uh, read and, and personally um, uh, somewhat inspirational to me. So anyway, I think you all know about Randy Posh who gave this uh, lecture or one of the last lectures uh, and, and he was dying of cancer at the time. Carnegie Mellon, wonderful young guy. Um, and uh, and it has gone viral, as they say. I think about ten thousand or ten million people have looked at it on YouTube or uh, in video or some other way. And uh, then uh, then then it was published as a book. I think an e explanation and an exploration because uh, the book is longer than, of course, the uh, the lecture itself. But uh, but nonetheless, it uh, I think it is. Uh, um, uh, in today's world, something very appropriate. So I'm going to read just a couple of things, and I'm going to really open myself up for questions. Um, this one is uh, this one is a skill set called leadership, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like countless American nerds born in 1960, I spent part of my childhood dreaming of being Captain James T. Kirk, commander of the Starship Enterprise. I didn't see myself as Captain Posh. I imagined a world where I actually got to be Captain Kirk. For ambitious young boys with a scientific bent, there could be no greater role model than James C. Kirk in Star Trek. In fact, I seriously believe that I became a better teacher and, and colleague, maybe even a better husband, by watching Kirk run the Enterprise. Think about it. If you've 
seen the TV show, you know that Kirk was not the smartest guy in the ship. Mr. Spock, his first officer, was the always logical intellect on board. Dr. McCoy had all the medical knowledge available to mankind in the, in the 2260s. Scotty was the chief engineer who had the technical know-how to keep that ship running, even when it was under attack by aliens. Sounds like a university, doesn't it? So, what was Kirk's skill set? Why did he get to climb on board the Enterprise and run it? The answer there is this skill set called leadership. I learned so much by watching this guy in action. He was the distilled essence of a dynamic manager, a guy who knew how to delegate, had the passion to inspire, and looked good in what he wore to work. He never professed to have skills greater than his subordinates. He acknowledged that they knew what they were doing in their domains, but he established the vision, the tone. He was in charge of morale. On top of that, Kirk had the romantic chops to woo women in every galaxy he visited. Picture me at home watching TV, a 10-year-old in glasses. Every time Kirk showed up on the screen, he was like a Greek god to me. And he had the coolest damn toys. When I was a kid, I thought it was fascinating that he could be on some planet and he had this thing, this Star Trek communicator device that let him talk to people back on the ship. I now walk around with one in my pocket. He remembers that it was Kirk who introduced, introduced us to the cell phone. A few years ago, I got a call on my communicator device from a Pittsburgh author named Chip Walter. He was co-writing a book with William Shatner, a.k.a. Kirk, about how scientific breakthroughs first imagined on Star Trek foreshadowed today's technological advancements. Captain Kirk wanted to visit my virtual reality lab at Carnegie Mellon. Granted, my childhood dream was to be Kirk, but I still considered a dream realized when Shatner showed up. It's cool to meet your boyhood idol, but it's almost indescribably cooler when he comes to you to see cool stuff you're doing in your own lab. My students and I worked around the clock to build a virtual reality world that resembled the bridge of the Enterprise. When Shatner arrived, we put this bulky head-mounted display on him. It had a screen inside, and as he turned his head, he could immerse himself in 360-degree images of his old ship. Wow, you even have the turbo lift door, he said. And we had a surprise for him, too. Red alert sirens. Without missing a beat, he barked, We're under attack. Shatner stayed for three hours and asked tons of questions. A colleague later said to me, He just kept asking and asking. He doesn't seem to get it. But I was hugely impressed. Kirk, I mean Shatner, was the ultimate example of a man who knew what he didn't know, was perfectly willing to admit it, and didn't want to leave until he understood. That's heroic to me. I wish every grad student had that attitude. During my cancer treatment, when I was told that only 4% of pancreatic cancer victims or patients live five years, a line from the Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, came into my head. In the film, Starfleet cadets are faced with a simulated training scenario where, no matter what they do, their entire crew is killed. The film explains that when Kirk was a cadet, he reprogrammed the simulation because he didn't believe in the no-win scenario. Over the years, some of my sophisticated academic colleagues have turned up their noses at my Star Trek infatuation, but from the start, it has never failed to stand me in good stead. After Shatner learned of my diagnosis, he sent me a photo of himself as Kirk. On it, he wrote, I don't believe in the no-win scenario, which I think is, uh, I think that that's fun. Let me just see here. Okay, I've got, let me, let me read one more or two here. Um, um, I thought this was interesting in in, um, in in light of the fact that we're in an academic environment and um, and so so I'm, this was called the happiest place on earth. <coughs> in 1969, when I was an eight-year-old, 
My family went on a cross-country trip to see Disneyland. It was an absolute quest, and once we got there, I was just in awe of the place. It was the coolest environment I'd ever been in. They stood in line with all the other kids. All I could think was, I can't wait to make stuff like that. Two decades later, when I got my PhD in computer science from Carnegie Mellon, I thought that made me infinitely qualified to do anything, so I dashed off my letters of application to Walt Imagineering. They sent me some of the nicest go-to-hell letters I'd ever received. They said they had reviewed my applications and they did not have any positions which require your particular qualifications. Nothing. This is a company famous for hiring armies of people to sweep the streets. Disney had nothing for me, not even a broom. So that was a setback. But I kept my mantra in mind. The brick wall, the brick walls are there for a reason. They're not there to keep us out. The brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. Fast forward to 1995, I'd become a professor at the University of Virginia and I'd helped build a system called virtual reality on $5 a day. This was a time when virtual reality experts were insisting they'd need a half million dollars to do anything and my colleagues and I did, did uh, our own little version of the Hewlett Packard garage thing and hacked together a working low budget virtual reality system. People in the computer science world thought this was pretty great. Not too long after, I learned that Disney Imagineering was working on a virtual reality project. It was top secret, and it was an Aladdin attraction that would allow people to ride a magic carpet. I called Disney and explained that I was a virtual reality researcher looking for information on it. I was ridiculously persistent, and I kept getting passed on and on until I was connected to a guy named John Snobby. He happened to be the brilliant Imagineer running the team. I felt as if I had called the White House and been put through to the president. As we chatted a while, I told John I'd be coming to California. Could we get together? Truth was, if you said yes, the only reason I'd be coming would be to see him. I'd have gone to Neptune to see him. He told me, okay, if I was coming anyway, we could have lunch. Before going to see him, I did 80 hours of homework. I asked all the virtual reality hotshots I knew to share their thoughts and questions about this Disney project. As a result, when I finally met John, he was wowed by how prepared I was. It's easy to look... Um, smart when you're prepared and smart people. Then at the end of the lunch, I made the ask. I have a sabbatical coming up, I said. What's that, he asked, which was my first hint of the academic entertainment culture clash I'd be facing. After I explained the concept of sabbaticals, he thought it would be a fine idea to have me spend mine with his team. The idea was I'd come for six months, work on a project, and publish a paper about it. I was thrilled. It was almost unheard of for Imagineering to invite an academic like me inside their secretive operation. The only problem, I needed permission from my bosses to take this kind of oddball sabbatical. Well, every Disney story needs a villain, and mine happened to be the certain dean from the University of Virginia. Dean Wormley, as Jay dubbed him in the homage to the film uh, Animal House, was concerned that Disney would suck all this intellectual property out of my head that rightfully belonged to the university. He argued against my doing it. I asked him, do you think this is a good idea at all? And he said, I have no idea if it's a good idea. He was proof that sometimes the most impenetrable brick walls are made of flesh. Because I was getting nowhere with him, I took my case to the Dean of Sponsored Research. I asked him, do you think it's a good uh, idea that I do this? And he answered, I don't have enough information to say, but I do know that one of my star faculty members is in my office and he's really excited, so tell me more. Now, here's a lesson for managers and administrators, both deans said the same thing. They didn't know if this sabbatical was a good idea, but think about how differently they said it. I ended up being allowed to take that sabbatical, and it was a fantasy come true. In fact, I have a confession. This is exactly how geeky I am. So 
Soon after I arrived in California, I hopped into my convertible and drove over to Imagineering headquarters. It was a hot summer night, and I had the soundtrack to Disney's The Lion King blasting in my stereo. Tears actually began streaming down my face as I drove past the building. Here I was, the grown-up version of that wide-eyed eight-year-old at Disneyland. I'd finally arrived. I was an Imagineer. Well, I had a couple of others, but I think what I'll do is, that's kind of fun, isn't it? Uh, and if you haven't read this book, you ought to you ought to read it or you ought to get a chance to see it on video or whatever. So, saying that, um, what kinds of questions can I answer for all of you? About reading, of course. Or about anything else, I guess. Anyone have any questions that I'd like to ask? I read Vanity Fair. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I read Vanity Fair. I, I do. I, it, it comes in, and I kind of like uh, like to look at it. And I just got my latest uh, issue. And uh, my my daughter, uh, how I started reading Vanity Fair with my daughter was with me for a period of time because of her accident last year, and she and she reads and she ordered it to the house, and I just never stopped it. And so now I read it, and it's uh, and I feel really kind of guilty about doing it. I want you to know that. I really do. I really do. Don't tell anyone, would you please? Okay. Great. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you know, um, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, the first question is, uh, was there a book that had enormous influence on you? know, I, I get asked that question a lot. You know, what is my for, favorite book or whatever? I, I tend to I tend to be so eclectic in uh, my interest. Uh, the Once and Future King always had an influence on me. Um, uh, I don't know, just something kind of the imagination of it. I I think that uh, of, of the recent books that I've read, I think that two McCullough's book on Truman, I thought it was an interesting interesting book. And and the the book that I've read most recently that I think is absolutely fabulous, which has a lot of application to the world we're in right now, is. Uh, is um, is team of rivals, and um, um, and I think it's uh, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book on uh, on on Lincoln, but taking a different perspective on leadership. And so I mean, but there's so many books over years, over time that I've had that have played a played a role in my life. Um, as to what I would take with me, oh gosh, I think I would take. I've got a wonderful fat book. On a collection of Shakespeare, and that's probably the one that I take with me. Love Shakespeare, love to read it, read it still, read the sonnets, do whatever I can. I find it just fascinating. I like Shakespeare and I like opera, but I can't take opera with me, so I. I knew you were my kind of president. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Questions? Yes, sir. Well, I think that this renovated building is um, is a great uh, tribute to um, a university that is forward-looking. Um, I've had sort of a uh, little bit of a laugh about it. I had a group of faculty, well-known wonderful colleagues of mine, out in front of my office one day, uh, um, basically claiming that we are burning books because of the fact that this library, I think, Ray, when it was original, uh, it had about 2.4 million volumes, something like that in it, and now, and now it has only about 1.3 million volumes. Oh, so we burned books, we got rid of them. Well, no, the, the truth of the matter is, and I have a very strong view about libraries, I actually have written two books on academic libraries, and uh, this in many ways represents what I believe libraries should be. 
first of all, we're all here. Uh, it's a gathering space. We've got a cafeteria across the place. We get we have students flying back and forth. Yesterday, I gave out some data that, that we had a, a nearly 12,000 students on the, uh, visitors on the first day of uh, of school when this library is open, and four years earlier when the old library was open, we had only a quarter of that, and most of them were asleep, and a couple of them were dead. And um, uh, you know, the, the the point being is, libraries no longer can be places in which you hide things and in which you're quiet, in which, uh, in which uh, you are, uh, you're supposed to be uh, gathered in some kind of symbolic uh, gesture, rather what they need to be are lively places in which they really centralize the notion of intellectual values and life and community. And I think that that's what this library is. It is also the most, if not one of the most technologically advanced libraries in this country. So we are about technology. I mean, we're not controlled by it, but we are destined to use it in ways that I think are very meaningful and we're connected to the world right here from the central part of this campus. The third thing is that it really is at the heart of the campus. Uh, all, the Olmsted brothers, thank you, Ray, for correcting me. I had, uh, you know, I always thought it was Frederick Law Olmsted for years who, uh, who, uh, who was the architect of the Oval. It was his sons, or brothers. Actually, they were sons and brothers. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, of, of, this, of the famous Olmsted family, okay, we'll do that. They, they, created, a, they created our oval, but, but, but the fact that this library is, is, is kind of the marker of that uh, intellectual conversation that takes place through the, uh, through the aesthetic values of our campus, I think is very important also. So uh, it's a wonderful building. And look at it, I mean, look at it. If, if you're ever in... Uh, in uh, in the old library, if you're ever in very many libraries, there's very few that is having the kind of intellectual commerce that we see going on right now. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Do you have any favorite memories of visits to the library when you were a child? Oh, yeah. Uh, let me tell you something. I, this, this is kind of amusing. But I grew up in a very small town called Vernal, Utah, a town of 3,500 people. It was the largest city between Salt Lake City and Denver which is a distance, about the same distance as between Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up in rural America. You know, pe people, who, uh, people who are university presidents, most people think, you know, you grew up in Manhattan or Chicago, or you grew up in uh, some kind of uh, uh, urban setting. I grew up in the most rural setting. It was a uh, farming community. It was a, it was a, uh, I, I, went, I went to a consolidated high school, consolidated with the, uh, with the Native American Reservation, uh, you know, one of, one of my best friends, and still one of my best friends, is Tommy Running Bear. I mean, you know, I, I really grew up in a very rural setting, and uh, and we did not, I did, we did not have television. It was not available, and we didn't have a movie theater. The only thing we had was the library, and so I read every book in the library. I mean, all four of them. I joke about it, but uh, but now the library was really the central part of my. Um, my existence. Uh, growing up, it was, you know, you go to the library, get your books, come home, sit on the front steps, read them, and then go back and uh, go through. I mean, I can remember uh, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and every possible uh, kind of equation. I also, uh, I, I point out that I love opera because, um, uh, uh, because of the fact that, because we didn't have a television, and we had this little small radio station, which was just a, an agricultural radio station, the only thing I could get on Saturday afternoons because I couldn't watch the movies, uh, like most kids would go and watch Roy Rogers or Gene Autry or something, the only thing I could get was KSL uh, Clear Station out of Salt Lake City. It's a 50,000 watt station. And so, um, 
every Saturday afternoon, I would do like any kid. But, but I, what I would do is I'd listen to the Texaco Opera of the Year. And so I grew up in rural, in rural uh, America listening to Texaco Opera of the Year. And so that was my entertainment for Saturday afternoon. So I mean, I can still cite most of the libretti in, in uh, you know, in, uh, in German or in, uh, in Italian. You know, I'm probably one of the few people you know who's ever sat through, at, who's been to uh, Bayreuth, uh, Bayreuth and sat through all of the ring cycle. I mean, my rear end still feels it. and. Uh, those kind of things. So, you know, it, it, I, I, the point that I'm trying to make is the fact that I think where you grow up is so influences the way you view the world and growing up with that kind of uh, atmosphere. So, so books were very central to my, to my world. In fact, they were the only solid thing that I had in, in the sense of kind of an intellectual, uh, uh, kind of an intellectual value system. Questions? I would tell you, you're not going to get me singing. I will do almost anything, but I will not sing. I'll stand on my head, yes. I do a little reading in foreign languages um, just to kind of keep up my, my ability. Um, I am, if you can imagine, I'm from rural Utah, so therefore I grew up as a very devout Mormon. And at age 19, I went on a mission for the Mormon Church. I went to Germany, um, for a, where it was kind of total immersion. I mean, I lived with a German family, learned German, and uh, and uh, spoke it uh, spoke it uh, for all that time. Uh, but I was, and I was there for three years. About halfway through my mission, I was asked because the church decided they wanted to open um, themselves to to move to Italy. I was asked to learn Italian, and so I. Um, so I um, started to, uh, so I learned Italian. But, but the funny thing, I was just in Italy last uh, summer. This is, this is, this to me at least is funny. Funny, I was in Florence Hotel, um, the, the, the woman's hotel, I was speaking to her in Italian. I mean, I, you know, it's kind of like a bicycle. You, you, you pick it up and, uh, and, um, and she said, she said, asked me what part of Germany I was from because what I do is to this day is I translate from English to German to Italian because my, my, my Italian teacher was a German. Um, and so I read her Spiegel um, off and on, which is kind of the German Time magazine in order to be able to keep up with the language. And I read Corriere della Sera, which is the, probably the premier newspaper in, uh, in, in Italy. When I, when I go to New York, I'll kind of go to the international book stand and pick them up. So just as a way to kind of keep my language up. Questions? Anyone else have any questions? I tell you what, my time is up, as a matter of fact. So anyway, thank you all for being here today. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day, okay? Thank you. Thank you, President Key. Uh, our uh, uh, second speaker uh, brings us a, a very different uh, kind of a book. Uh, she is uh, Marianne uh, Walter Kingsel. And she is the uh, uh, coordinator for the Center for East European and Slavic Studies and has a degree in Russian literature. Uh, and uh, uh, her theme is the uh, uh, supernatural. Uh, so uh, this will prepare us uh, for the Halloween season. Hi, I work for the Center for Slavic and East European Studies, which um, our purvey encompasses not only Russia, Ukraine, Czech Republic, Poland, parts of Central Asia. 
Um, and I was in, initially scheduled to do my reading on October 29th, which just happens to be our Halloween party, uh, the OSU Ghost Tour. Uh, we have a blood drive the day before that to coincide with the vampires and whatnot. So I had picked something a little more in that vein. Uh, and um, also, when I was choosing, um, I picked a story by Nikolai Gogol, who is uh, sort of the most famous writer of satires, uh, absurd, supernatural, um, in the 19th century in Russia. And this year, this October 29th, is his 200th, the 200th anniversary of his birth. Uh, it also will mark uh, the release of a new Russian adaptation of the story that I'm about to read, V. Um, there is also a 1967 version, a uh, very good film. We have it in the Slavic Center's Film Library where we have over 1,200 Russian films and uh, probably another 500 films uh, in languages and about uh, the other countries that we deal with. Um, I've, the uh, staff here has put flyers out about our Halloween party. If you're interested, it's open to the public. Uh, be down in Haggerty Hall. We'll have food, movies, uh, the OSU Ghost Tour, uh, a lecture on vampires by Dan Collins of the Slavic Department, who teaches the vampire course uh, in the fall, and um, other goodies. And um, so now I guess I will switch. Oh, and there is a sign-up sheet for anybody that's interested. The Slavic Center puts out a Monday email where we tell about all the events that we sponsor uh, on campus and in the area. Feel free to put your email down, and I'll take it back and give it to my boss who will put you on our list so that you can uh, see what other things uh, we sponsor throughout the year. Um, i give you a little bit of background on Nikolai Gogol. Um, he's probably best known for his novel Dead Souls and also for the Inspector General, which actually came over here. I wish you theater department put on a production of it uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Danny Kay, the late comedian, did a, an English version of it. Um, but Gogol was born in the Ukraine, and the part of the Ukraine that was then, at that time, uh, in 1806 and 1809, it was part of the Russian Empire. So he wrote in Russian. But he wrote a lot of adaptations of Ukrainian folktales in Russian. And uh, this story is from a collection of those folktales. Uh, and he liked the bizarre. He liked the supernatural. Um, what I'm going to read uh, is um, this is taken from a translation by Richard Pieper and Larissa Volkonsky uh, called Tales of Nikolai Gogol. Um, and the annotations in this text were done by Dan Collins from our Slavic department. Um, Gogol begins the story with the note, V is a colossal creation of folk imagination. This name is applied by people in Little Russia, that's Ukraine at that time, to the chief of the gnomes whose eyelids touch the ground. The whole story is a popular legend. I do not wish to change it in any way and tell it almost as simply as I heard it. Well, this is a fabrication because the story draws on folk motifs, but Gogol made it up himself. Um, and since I only have half the time I thought I would have, um, I have the, the Wikipedia uh, condensation of the first part of the story. Um, the story concerns three students from the Bratsky Monastery in Kiev. Um, two of them you don't need to worry about, but the guy who the story centers around is basically a third year student, a junior. 
Uh, they call him a philosopher. That was just their term for a third-year student. His name's Homa Brut, and uh, that sort of translates as Thomas Brutus, no relation to the Buckeye. Uh, and um, the story picks up uh, when they're out for summer break. And when the students would get out from break in Kiev, they would disperse all over the country. They were pretty rowdy because they had been in a religious school all year. They would steal stuff, they'd pull pranks, and uh, eventually wend their way to their homes in little villages in the surrounding area. Um, the three particular students in this story um, don't quite make it to their home. They get lost. Uh, on the steeps and eventually wind up at two small houses and a farm. And there uh, they meet an old woman who tells them she doesn't have very much room, but they kind of bully her and eventually she agrees to let them stay. Um, she, puts, she puts uh, Homa, the philosopher, in the sheep's pen. Uh, later that night, the old woman comes to Homa, but her eyes are glowing strangely and she leaps on his back and he reluctantly finds himself galloping all over the countryside with her. He, he eventually subdues her by chanting exorcisms, which of course would be forbidden by the church. Um, then he rides her and beats her with a stick. And at the end of this uh, nightmare, uh, the old woman collapses and Homa finds that she turns into a beautiful girl. Well, he runs <laughs> back to the seminary. Um, and uh, later, uh, is asked by the dean of the seminary, uh, there is a Cossack um, landowner who has asked him to come to his farm and uh, read the Psalms for the Dead over the body of his daughter, who was found uh, near death out on the steeps. Make the connection. <laughs> the dean is bribed by the Cossack and sends Homa out to comply with the Cossack landowner's last wish. Uh, several big, burly Cossacks come to get the seminarian, and uh, as he is transported to the farm, he hears a lot of rumors that uh, the Cossack's daughter was in league with the devil, and they tell horror stories about her evil ways. So I'm going to pick up the story. You get to hear all of the uh, hijinks that goes on on the road, and songs, and dancing, and uh, you find out a lot about uh, Homa Brut on the way that he really doesn't fully believe in what he's studying and that he's kind of a carefree, you know, sort of a lackadaisical uh, kind of a guy. Um, so I'm going to pick up the first night that he has taken to the decrepit little church in the village to read over the body of the girl who he knows nothing, he doesn't know who she is. Together with Foma, the three Cossacks climbed the steep sets of the porch and went into the church. Here they left the philosopher, having wished him a successful performance of his duty, and locked the door on him, as the master ordered. The philosopher remained alone. First he yawned, then stretched himself, then blew on both hands and finally looked around. In the middle stood a black coffin. Candles flickered before dark icons. Their light illuminated only the iconostasis and finally the middle of the church. The far corners of the vestibule were shrouded in darkness. The tall, ancient iconostasis showed a profound decrepitude. Its openwork, covered in gold, blackened, now gleamed only in sparks. The gilding had fallen off in some places and was quite black in others. The faces of the saints, completely darkened, looked somehow gloomy. 
The philosopher glanced around once more. Why, he said, what's frightening about it? No man can get in here and against the dead, the visitors from the other world. I've got such prayers that once I've read them, they'll never lay a finger on me. Nothing to it, he said, with a wave of his hand. Let's read. Going up to the choir lock, he saw several bundles of candles. That's good, he thought. I must light up the whole church so that it's bright as day. Uh, too bad I can't smoke a pipe in God's church. And he began sticking wax candles to all the ledges, lecterns, and icons, not standing in the least. And soon the whole church was filled with light. Only the darkness above seemed to become deeper. And the dark images looked more gloomily from the old carved frames in which the gold gleamed here and there. He went up to the coffin, timidly looked into the dead girl's face, and could not help shutting his eyes with a slight start. Such terrible, dazzling beauty. He turned and wanted to step away with strange curiosity, with the strange self-contradictory feeling that will not leave a man, especially in a time of fear. He could not refrain from glancing at her as he went, and then with the same feeling of trepidation, glancing once more. Indeed, the deceased girl's sharp beauty seemed frightful. Perhaps she would not have struck him with such panic terror if she'd been slightly ugly. But there was her features, nothing dull, listless, lusterless, or dead. The face was alive. And it seemed to the philosopher that she was looking at him through closed eyes. It even seemed to him that a tear rolled from under her right eyelash. And when it stopped on her cheek, he made out clearly that it was a drop of blood. He hastily went over to the choir, opened the book to cheer himself up, and began reading in his loudest voice. His voice struck the wooden walls of the church, long, silent, and deaf. Solitary, without echo, it poured in a low bass into the utterly dead silence. It seemed a little loud even to the reader himself. What's there to be afraid of, he thought to himself, meanwhile. She won't get up from her coffin because she'll be afraid of God's word. Let her be there. And what kind of Cossack am I if I'm scared? So I drank a bit. That's why it seemed so frightening. I could take some snuff. Ah, fine tobacco. Nice tobacco. Good tobacco. And yet, as he turned each page, he kept glancing sidelong at the coffin. And an involuntary feeling seemed to whisper to him, Look, look, she's going to get up. She's going to rise. She's going to peek out of the coffin. But there was a deathly silence. The coffin lid stood motionless. The candles poured out a whole flood of light. Terrible is a lit up church at night with a dead body and not a living soul. Raising his voice, he began singing in various voices, trying to stifle the remnants of his fear. Yet he turned his eyes to the coffin every other moment, as if asking the inadvertent question, what if she rises? What if she gets up? But the coffin did not stir. If only there was a sound, some living being, even the chirp of a cricket in the corner. There was just the slight sizzle of some remote candle and the faint spatter of wax dripping on the floor. Well, what if she gets up? She raised her head. He glanced wildly and rubbed his eyes, but she was indeed no longer lying, but sitting up in the coffin. He turned his eyes away, then again looked with horror at the coffin. She's standing up. She's walking through the church with her eyes closed, constantly spreading her arms as if wishing to catch someone. She was walking straight toward him. In fear, he drew a circle around himself with an effort, and he began reading prayers and reciting incantations that, his, that had been taught him by one monk who had seen witches and unclean spirits all his life. 
She stood almost on the line itself, but it was clearly beyond her power to cross it, and she turned all blue like someone dead for several days. Homa did not have the courage to look at her. She was frightful. She clacked her teeth and opened her dead eyes. But seeing nothing, she turned in the other direction with a fury that showed in her twitching face and spreading arms, clutched with them at every pillar and every corner, trying to catch Homa. Finally, she stopped, shook her finger, and lay down in the coffin. The philosopher still could not come to his senses and kept glancing fearfully at the witch's cramped dwelling. Finally, the coffin suddenly tore from its place and with a whistle began to fly all through the church, crossing the air in every direction. The philosopher saw it almost over his head, but at the same time he saw that it could not enter the circle that he had drawn. So he stepped up his incantations. The coffin crashed down in the middle of the church and remained motionless. The corpse again rose from it, blue, turning green. But just then came the distant crowing of the cock. The corpse sank back to the coffin, and the coffin lid slammed shut. The philosopher's heart was pounding and sweat streamed from him. But encouraged by the crowing of the cock, he quickly finished reading the pages he ought to have read earlier. At daybreak, he was relieved by the beetle, gray-haired Yevtuch, who on his, this occasion performed the duties of a church warden. Having gone to lie down, the philosopher was unable to fall asleep for a long time. But fatigue overcame him, and he slept till dinner. When he woke up, all the events of the night seemed to have happened in a dream. To bolster his strength, he was given a pint of vodka. At dinner, he quickly relaxed, contributed observations on this and that, and ate a rather mature pig, almost by himself. However, he did not venture to speak of his experiences in the church. For some feeling, some feeling unaccountable to himself and to the questions of the curious, he replied, yes, there were all sorts of wonders. The philosopher was one of those people with whom, once they have been fed, an extraordinary philanthropy awakens. Pipe in his teeth, he lay down and looked at them all with extraordinarily sweet eyes and kept spitting to the side. That's the first night. Now I'm going to skip. Um, he, he stays. He really would like to leave the village, but they feed him well and entertain him, so he stays for the second night, feeling that he's safe. Well, our time has come, Mr. Student, the familiar great Cossack said to him, getting up from his place together with Dorosh. Let's go to work. Homa was once again taken to the church in the same way. Again, he was left alone, and the door locked on him. No sooner was he left alone than timorousness began once more to creep into his breast. Again, he saw the dark icons, the gleaming frames, and the familiar black coffin standing in menacing silence and immobility in the middle of the church. Well, he said, this marvel doesn't make me marvel now. It's only frightening the first time. Yes, it's only a little frightening the first time. Then it's not frightening anymore, not frightening at all. He hastened to the choir, drew a circle around himself, spoke several incantations, and began reading loudly, resolved not to raise his eyes from the book or pay attention to anything. He'd been reading for about an hour already and had begun to weary and to cough a little. He took a snuff bottle from his pocket and before taking a pinch, timorously turned his gaze back to the coffin. His heart went cold. The corpse was already standing before him right on line, fixing her dead green eyes on him. The student shuddered and felt a chill run through all his veins. Dropping his eyes to the book, 
He began reading his prayers and exorcisms louder and heard the corpse clack her teeth again and wave her arm, wishing to seize him. But looking out of the corner of one eye, he saw that the corpse was trying to catch him in the wrong place and evidently could not see him. She was growling hollowly and began to utter dreadful words with her dead lips. They spluttered hoarsely like the gurgling of boiling pitch. He could not have said what they meant, but something dreadful was contained in them. The philosopher fearfully realized that she was reciting incantations. Wind swept through the church at these words, and there was a noise as of a multitude of fluttering wings. He heard wings beating against the glass of the church, windows in their iron frames, heard clacks scratching iron with a rasping noise, and countless powers banging on the doors trying to break in. His heart pounded heavily all the while. Shutting his eyes, he kept reading incantations and prayers. And at last, something suddenly whistled far away. It was the distant crowing of the cock. An exhausted philosopher stopped and rested his soul. Those who came to relieve the philosopher found him barely alive. He was leaning back against the wall, goggle-eyed and staring fixedly at the Cossacks, who were shaking him. They practically carried him out and had to support him all the way. Coming to the master's yard, he roused himself and asked to be given a pint of vodka. After drinking it, he smoothed his hair on his head and said, there's all sorts of trash in this world and such horrors happen as, oh well. That and the philosopher waved his hand. The circle had gathered round him, hung their heads on hearing such words. Even the young boy whom all the servants considered their rightful representative when it came to such matters as cleaning the stables or toting the water, even this poor boy also stood gaping. Just then, a not entirely old wench passed by in a tight-fitting apron that displayed her round, firm shape. The old cook's assistant, a terrible flirt who always found something to pin on her cap, a bit of ribbon or a carnation, or even a scrap of paper if there was nothing else. Greetings, Oma, she said, seeing the philosopher. Ay, yeah, yeah, what's happened to you? She cried out and clasped her hands. What do you mean, foolish woman? Oh, my God, but you've gone all gray. Oh, oh, and it's the truth she's telling, said Spirit, studying him intently. You've really gone all gray like our old Yeftuk. On hearing this, the philosopher rushed headlong into the kitchen, where he noticed a triangular piece of mirror glued to the wall, stained by flies in front of which forget-me-nots, periwinkles, and even a garland of marigolds were stuck, showing that it was intended for the stylish flirt's toilette. He saw with horror the truth of their words. Half of his hair had indeed turned white. Homa Brute hung his head and gave himself over to reflection. And now we'll go on. Uh, he does make an attempt to escape the village. And he gets as far as the river stops to take a drink and uh, finds one of the big burly Cossacks behind him who brings him back to the village. Um, and this is the start of his third night in the church. You oughtn't to take such a detour, Yavtuk said. Much better to take the path I did, straight past the stables. And it's too bad about your coat. Good Brockhoff, how much did you pay for yard? Anyhow, we had a nice walk. It's time for home. The philosopher, scratching himself, trudged after Yavtu. That accursed witch will give me a hot time now, he thought. Though, what's with me, really? What am I afraid of? Am I not a Cossack? I did read for two nights. God will help me with the third. 
The accursed witch must have done a good deal of sinning for the unclean powers to stand by her like that. These reflections occupied him as he entered the master's yard. Having encouraged himself with such observations, he persuaded Dorosh, who through his connection with the steward occasionally had access to the master's cellar, to fetch a jug of rot gut, and the two friends sitting under this shed supped not much less than half a bucket, so that the philosopher suddenly getting to his feet shouted, musicians, we must have musicians. So he dances um, and has some more supper, and then Yevtuk, the burly Cossack, comes up, it's time, let's go. Fight on a nail, you accursed hog, thought the philosopher getting to his feet, and then he said, let's go. On the way, the philosopher constantly glanced to the right and the left and tried to talk a little bit with his guides. But Yevtuk kept mum. Dorish himself was untalkative. The night was infernal. Far off, a whole pack of wolves howled, and even the dog's barking was somehow frightening. Seems like it's something else howling. That's not a wolf, said Dorish. Yevtuk kept mum. The philosopher found nothing to say. They approached the church and stepped in under its decrepit vaults, which showed how little the owner of the estate cared about God and his own soul. <clears throat> Yevtuk and Dorish withdrew as before, and the philosopher remained alone. Everything was the same. Everything had the same menacingly familiar look. He paused for a minute. In the middle, as ever, stood the motionless coffin of the terrible witch. I won't be afraid. By God, I won't be afraid, he said. And again, drawing a circle around himself, he began recalling all his incantations. The silence was dreadful. The candles flickered, pouring light all over the church. The philosopher turned one page, then another, and noticed that he was not reading what was in the book at all. In fear, he crossed himself and began to sing. This cheered him somewhat. The reading went ahead, the pages flashed by one after another. Suddenly, amidst the silence, the iron lid of the coffin split with a crack, and the dead body rose. It was still more horrible than the first time. Its teeth clacked horribly, row against row. Its lips twitched convulsively, and with wild shrieks and incantations came rushing out. Wind whirled through the church. Icons fell to the floor. Broken glass dropped from the windows. The doors tore from the hinges, and numberless host of monsters flew into God's church. A terrible noise of wings and scratching claws filled the whole church. Everything flew and rushed about, seeking the philosopher everywhere. Homus had cleared of the last trace of drunkenness. He just kept crossing himself and reading prayers at random. And at the same time, he heard the unclean powers flitting about him, all but brushing him with the tips of their wings and repulsive tails. He did not have the courage to look at them closely. He only saw the whole wall occupied by a huge monster standing amidst its own tangled hair as in a forest. Through the web of hair, two eyes stared horribly, the eyebrows raised slightly. Above it in the air, there was something like an immense bubble with a thousand tongues and scorpion stings reaching from its middle. Black earth hung on them in lumps. They all looked at him, searching, unable to see him, surrounded by the mysterious circle. Bring thee, get thee, the words of the dead body rang out. And suddenly there was silence in the church. The wolves howling could be heard far away, 
and soon heavy footsteps rang out in the church. With a sidelong glance, he saw them leading in some squat, hefty, splayed-foot man. He was black earth all over. His earth-covered legs and arms stuck out like strong, sinewy roots. Heavily he trod, stumbling all along. His long eyelids were lowered to the ground. With horror, Homa noticed that the face on him was made of iron. He was brought in under the arms and put right in place where Homa stood. Lift my eyelids, I can't see, he said in a subterranean voice. And the entire host rushed to lift his eyelids. Don't look, some inner voice whispered to the philosopher. He could not help himself and look. There he is, he cried, and fixed an iron finger on him. And all that were there fell upon the philosopher. Breathless, he crashed to the ground, and straightway the spirit flew out of him in terror. A cock crow rang out. This was already the second cock crow. The monsters had missed the first. The frightened spirits rushed pell-mell for the windows and doors in order to fly out quickly, but nothing doing, and so they stayed there, stuck in the doors and windows. When the first priest came in, he stopped at the sight of such disgrace in God's sanctuary and did not dare serve, serve a Panakita in such a place. So the church remained forever, with monsters stuck in its doors and windows, overgrown with forest, roots, weeds, wild blackthorn, and no one now can find the path to it. So, um, if you want to see this, it's a terrific movie. Um, even though it was made in the 60s, it has wonderful special effects. Um, and once again, there's a new version of it coming out. If you like the absurd, the supernatural, the bizarre, Gogol's a wonderful writer. Uh, the library has many versions of his books. And I hope you'll all come to the Halloween party because we're actually showing another movie of another one of Gogol's stories at the party.